0: Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why
0: And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Welcome to episode 16 of Why Make. Today, we're talking with Jason Schneider, a furniture maker, turner, sculptor, and teacher who is most well-known for his work in corrugated cardboard. Jason currently
1: exhibits his work and teaches workshops around the country. He is also head of the Woodworking and Furniture Design Program at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan.
0: I first met Jason at the Anderson Ranch Arts Center in Colorado in 2011. Both Eric and I have always been really interested and intrigued by his whimsical and unique work with cardboard. Here's our conversation with Jason Schneider. So welcome,
1: Jason. Welcome to the Why Make podcast. Thanks for joining us. And we usually start with the the kernel of why make, which was, you know, what was your first inspiration to become a maker? And when do you first remember actually making something?
2: Sure. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me, by the way, guys. Yeah, absolutely. To be part of this podcast. Um, So I think early on I was a, uh, a tinkerer or uh, sort of a young problem solver as a child because I remember, um, you know, I used to always want to improve things. For instance, uh, my roller skates when I was a little kid, uh, they were always so uncomfortable. So I, I took them apart and put my uh, comfortable sneakers, my you know, and, and <laughs> you screwed them me. into the base and, and just had like a really comfortable pair of roller skates. So that was, uh, that was one of my earlier things. And then I was always just curious, you know, like uh, my grandfather lived above us and he uh, was a cabinet maker and he had a wood shop and a lot of materials laying around. So as a kid, I would take out some hammer and nails and take some of the two by fours and and like nail together hockey nets and soccer nets and Uh, I heard on an earlier podcast, you guys were talking about making quarter pipes and half pipes and stuff. Yeah. That's something that
0: I did when I was young. Where, where did you grow up, Jason?
2: Uh, New Jersey, uh, North Jersey, about maybe a half hour, uh, West of Manhattan. So it was a pretty exciting place to grow up and uh, a lot of diversity and, you know, um, but yeah, so that was some of my earliest things. And, you know, early on, as far as, you know, being an artist, uh, I was I have two older brothers and my oldest brother uh, used to draw things like muscle men and things like that. And uh, I was always wanted to be, you know, I thought that was really cool that he can, like, you know, have that dexterity to draw. And so I took over that and would draw football helmets and other things and I would paint. And So I was always uh, curious uh, as far as materials and how things go together and also uh, just creative in general.
0: Was that fostered a lot by your family or your brothers and sisters at all?
2: Um, well, I'm youngest of three. So I yeah. think while my brothers were off trying, you know, doing their thing, a lot of sports and stuff, I kind of yeah. like I saw what they were doing and I did part of that. But I also just kind of wanted to do my own thing. And so that's where art came in, I think. And my mom uh, was always supportive of, uh, of my creative interests.
1: Curious when you you talked about uh, you know screwing your uh, shoes into your skates is that uh-huh. it seems like your your first inclination of really making functional objects of ma- taking something that didn't optimally function and and make it more functional mm-hmm. and is is that sort of a a thread that winds through a lot of your early uh, experiences with art or were you more interested in abstract art or
2: well, no, I think it was the problem solving, um, just trying to make things either, either better or uh, make it my own or, you know, just see what I can do with things and, and learning learning new tools along the way. I, I remember, you know, every time I saw what a tool can do, I got really excited. Like, my mind just was going crazy with ideas. Uh, I mean, from early on, it was like a hammer and nails. Um, yeah. and. Um, uh, you know, then later on, say like middle school, uh, I was thinking about this earlier. I was like, even when I took like home ec and I saw what a sewing machine can do, I was like, <laughs> I could make my own clothes. Holy shit. You know, like, I was, uh, it was really exciting just to, uh, see what, what machines do. Like, and when I got into woodworking later on, when I saw what a bandsaw can do, I was like, Oh my <laughs> God, I could do anything. So the world is my oyster that's right
1: (laughs) so so sort of a a notion of that you know tools can drive ideas that's right yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. so you did go you you do have an undergraduate degree in art i do
2: i do it it, i took a weird path of getting there but you know i went to a two-year college uh, for art i had one art class that i wasn't very fond of and at the time (laughs) i was cooking uh it was like a color theory class so it was a little intense and I was fresh out of high school I was like I don't know about this yeah. stuff um but uh yeah I was cooking at the time and and got my associates in hotel restaurant management mm-hmm. um but then which by the way I think plays an important role in my what I did at the Anderson Ranch Art Center as well as learning how to manage and uh, have some sort of business sense, so that that two year degree I think was really beneficial to what I did later, but um, but anyway, I went back into art. I went to William Patterson University, uh, for, uh, well, graphic design at the time, thinking that's the way I was going to make money, and then while I was taking my foundation classes, I took a woodworking class, and I just fell in love with it. You know, I was learning how to turn. Um, I had a professor Joe uh, Van Putten. Tommy had a turn. And then my other woodworking professor, Alan Lazarus, um, really showed me uh, you know, everything there is to know about woodworking, you know. It, it was kind of the learning where you get a board and you have to plane it down square, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like one of those kind of introductions. It wasn't just, you know.
0: Then it, you make a, a box and go from there and
2: learn all right.
0: sharpening
2: and all that stuff. That's right. And he came from uh uh, Rochester Institute of technology. So he was one of those students of that kind of yeah. craft school. So,
0: so he introduced you to a lot of that, you know, kind of woodworking Wendell Castle and Samuel. So exactly. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So sort of the early, the early studio
1: furniture mode, which is kind of interesting. Cause I think a lot of us can, and can draw our roots back to RIT. Cause certainly, um, our, yeah, pri- I- our primary professor Wayne Rabb was an RIT student. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, my other primary professor, Chris Wyland, was an RIT student as well. So uh, it's kind of interesting how a lot of things come back to that RIT, <laughs> RIT program, RIT. <laughs> and and Wendell Castle, who I believe started that program.
2: Yeah. So
1: So no, it's an, an interesting evolution. So what did you do after um, you graduated from? You got your undergrad degree. Did you set up your own studio? Did you?
2: No. Um... I, I feel like I needed more, like I wanted more. And so I applied to grad school. Um, I really only applied to one school that first time and it was RISD and I didn't get in. And uh, so then I took a year off and I worked at the college, um, you know, which was wonderful. So I got to be close to the studios and work in them after The, co- hours. the
0: college you just graduated Yeah, William from. Patterson yeah, University, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And then um, in the evenings, I was able to work on my portfolio. To, to get that, you know, get better images, to fine tune the work a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then I applied to other schools. And, you know, at the time, um, at the time, I only knew a little bit uh, of like woodworkers and uh, architect designers, uh, because this was before the internet. You know, this was like mid-90s. And so, <laughs> yeah, we didn't have the world at our fingertips. So. I only had books and postcards and things like that to go off of. Catalogs. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So really, um, you know, I was heavily influenced by people like um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright and Charles Rene McIntosh, uh, as far as the architect designers. Um, And I was really interested in their exaggerated chair forms, like the ladder back chairs. That was something that was really, I was into. But then I also knew about uh, Sam Maloof and uh, Wendell Castle. And so those were a huge influence on my work. And then, okay, so when I left undergrad, um, I, w- I saw a postcard. I forget which gallery it was, but this guy, Rich Ford, who you guys probably know of. <laughs> yeah. So right. when I saw his work, his Disney-like work, very animated work, I was blown away. I was like, what is happening here and how can I do that? You know, so I learned that he went to grad school at San Diego State University. And so uh, so the next time I next round of applications for grad school, I applied to five schools total, got into all but RISD. Damn you, RISD. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay because San Diego was my first choice, you know. And what was really cool was as I was looking into grad schools, I saw that Rich Ford was teaching an upholstery workshop at Oregon College of Arts and Crafts. Oh, so I was great. like, all right, I was like maybe I'll go up there, take the workshop, fly down to San Diego, check out the school and then fly home and I'm like, whoa, that trip just blew my mind cuz it was my first workshop I ever took at Oregon College of Arts and Crafts. That was awesome. Got to meet Rich Ford and John Eric Byers and uh, wow. yeah, and then I I went um, and Gavin O'Grady too who went to San Diego State and then I went down to meet wendy who i i didn't even know of at the time and i just really stepped in shit by going to that program <laughs> to...
1: and that that would be wendy Mariama. yeah wendy
2: Mariama, that's
1: right Mariama, right which mm-hmm. actually interestingly enough i first uh saw wendy's work um when you talked about charles renee mcintosh that her mickey mcintosh mm-hmm. chair was like her first big piece to blow on the scene i remember seeing that in american craft God, that had to have been in the late 80s, wasn't it? It's was like Pretty uh, iconic piece. Yeah. yeah, the iconic play off of Macintosh's ladder back chair with the with the big Mickey Mouse ears.
2: That's right. But, That's right. I think she also um, maybe uh, came onto the stage, I think in Fine Woodworking, maybe it was like the back, uh, you know, the back cover of Fine Woodworking where she wrote on one of her pieces. And I think it it's sort of like the Gary Knox Bennett controversy piece, you know, like how can someone write on a piece of wood? Yeah. Well, she shared,
0: she shared the back cover with him. Okay. She was was on there and he was on there and it was the nail cabinet and then her, her uh, painted chair.
2: That's right.
1: Right. And of course, that's the, the nail cabinet is Gary Knox Bennett's piece where he, built, I can't even remember what the material was, it was a mahogany or something like that? And uh, he put a nail into the side of the cabinet and bent it. And it was a very obvious political statement about preciousness and it, uh, it rocketed through the woodworking world because of, you know, how dare you damage a
0: beautiful piece of wood? Yeah, so, so then it, at the same time, Wendy's doing that iconic piece as a, a female woodworker in a male dominated field and making waves
2: that's right yeah
0: so, but th- so you then you get to to jump into to taking school you know learning from wendy
2: right at san and, diego <laughs> and i really went at one of the best times because um i you know if i could drop a few names of who i was in my grad program with please uh, do <laughs> it was a three-year program which i thought was awesome to be there for three years and i was like i started in with like matt hutton Corey robinson Kim Winkle, Christine Lee, Mia Hall, Jennifer Anderson, Yuri Kobayashi, Michael oh. and Bob Marsh, so many people. Oh, my uh, gosh. That's who I got to work with for three years, and, and other fun people I didn't even name here. So
1: Wow. Oh, wow. I didn't even know Yuri Kobayashi uh, had uh, had studied at San Diego. I thought
2: she'd come straight from Japan. Actually, that what was funny was uh, my first semester there, she was a, um, an exchange student. And so, so she was straight from Japan <laughs> uh, yeah, straight from Japan, and we shared a, a like the this bench space together. And then uh, she went back to Japan for another semester and then came back as a full-time grad student in the program. Wow.
1: Yeah. And, and actually, uh, I mean, I remember seeing her work uh, at one of the furniture society conferences, I believe it was the one in Boone at app state. And she just blew me away. I mean, just the, uh, the complexity in her work, um, amazing. And of course, mm-hmm. Matthew Hutton and Corey Robinson. I think they're both now leading. Isn't is Corey Robinson at uh, Heron, Aaron,
2: Heron, Indianapolis? Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can't remember Mats,
2: where uh, Mecca, uh, Maine College of Art.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. you just you dropped, You just dropped into a melting pot. Oh my god. San gosh. Diego. Tell tell us tell us about it. <laughs>
2: Geez, I don't know where to start. <laughs> pick, pick, pick a couple. <laughs> a couple of... Well, I think uh, what's amazing is uh, Wendy, um, we call her Mama Yama. Um, Mama because, Yama. <laughs> because she is really like a mother to all of us in such a great way. Um, uh, you That's know, a wonderful I, nickname. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like going... Uh, I remember my first year in grad school. It was in 2001. And um, she's like... Uh, talking about Sofa, going to Sofa. And so Mike Olson and Yuri and I uh, joined her at Sofa. And within like the first hour, I met all my heroes. I met Sam Maloof. I met Gary Knox Ben. I met all these people. And they're all friends with Wendy. And so next thing you know, we're all out to dinner with so many Furniture Society people. So I think that was, uh, and whatever Wendy says, you know, I just kind of say, okay, I'll do that, Wendy. Whatever, (laughs) you know, because... She was the one who encouraged me to go to the Anderson Ranch Art Center as an intern, and then, you know, luckily uh, stayed on full time for ten years after that. But
0: uh, I mean, she's got her finger on the pulse of
2: furniture in the United States. <laughs> she really does. Um, but but, anyways, the the program is so rigorous because, you know, you would think that the faculty are the ones that are really hard on you, but your peers, um, you know, all those people I mentioned, we just pushed each other so hard. Um, you know, just, I remember being so frustrated at critiques, it's like present, <laughs> presenting what you made. And they're like, that's not what you made. I'm like, wait, what? I, no, <laughs> you know, like, it's oh. just, it's whole conceptual. Cause you know, that program is not a very traditional sort of crafts program. It's, it's more of this, you know, studio art furniture. And so there's layers of meaning behind the work and all this concept and stuff. Yeah. So, so that's why it got a little um, crazy. And I struggled with that working conceptually in grad school, but I, I think about halfway through, I I started to figure it out and I had a lot of fun with it. So.
0: What, what flipped the switch for you, do you think? I mean, aside from the critiques and that, you know, egging you on, but what do you think flipped the switch?
2: Well, I think early on, and like I said, it was a three-year program. So I'm so glad I had that much time Mm -hmm. to figure out what I was doing. Um, in the beginning, I was trying to figure out what I was interested in. I was, you know, still using a lot of color. I think my work was pretty whimsical and playful, sort of Rich Ford-like and Andy Buck-like and Tom Loser. Mm-hmm. Those were some big influences for me. Yeah. Um, but then partway through, Wendy had us uh, do this client program or client project where we had to go out. She set us up with people in the community and we had to go to their home and make a piece for them but they didn't have to commit to buy it or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just had to go see what they wanted and make a piece. So my clients Mm -hmm. wanted an outdoor bench. And at first I was like, oh no, deck furniture. Uh, (laughs) But then I went to their home and I got to see the architecture of their home and their art collection. And I thought, wow, this is going to be exciting. So in that piece, I made this bench that was uh, using some materials that I was familiar with because I came from after I did the hotel restaurant management thing and
0: was mm-hmm. doing my undergrad,
2: I was doing construction as well, doing roof sticks and siding and things like that, and so I had a familiarity with, a, like, cement and steel and things like that. So I incorporated all of that into the bench, and finally, I I felt like my work matured, and it was like halfway through grad program, and from that point on, I kind of lost the the heavy color and and stuff like that in the work, and just kind of maybe used the materials for their their qualities you know whether it be a cherry to suggest something a little more feminine in the work mm-hmm. and maybe something like a, a white oak for like a more masculine yeah. kind of thing so I just started using materials differently trusted the
0: nat- natural qualities of the work or of, right. the, of the materials more that's the that's the Oleson bench you're talking about that you made, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's a be- beautiful piece. Thank and you. it's it's interesting the process
1: Wendy chose. I mean, basically a, a very conceptual studio furniture program. And then she basically gives you a client and lets the client somewhat drive the project. Right. Um, I, I, I find that fascinating just because <laughs> God, I find so much of my conceptual work is just driven by trying to find out what I want to make. And then letting a client drive it means that you really have to you have to search for another level. So I can see how that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And collaborate too. you know, to be part of that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's that seems fascinating. Um, Right. uh, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Oh, sorry. No,
2: go ahead. Oh, uh, as far as that uh, client project, what was funny is the first thing they said to me is that they would like a bench that sits three comfortably. And that they can move easily and if you look at that bench it's made of cement balls and and it's heavy and it could sit too comfortably so it's not like i was trying to be rebellious it it was the collaborative (laughs) process that uh anyway little give and take yeah yeah Mm
1: -hmm. what if you can never move this piece and it only sits two would you (laughs) still be happy
2: exactly (laughs) sure
1: that'll be fine
2: (laughs) so it's done right
1: (laughs) And 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 how did and you know from that point on, how did how do you think uh conceptually your work grew? I mean, how did you well how did you start to approach things differently?
2: Well, uh, you know, I was forced to do it in graduate school and then finally when I was done with school, um after graduation, I uh I didn't I kind of went back I kind of I felt like I was tired of defending my work and I really did enjoy making that conceptual work because you know when you share it with people and kind of uh, talk about the meaning behind it it people have a whole crazy new appreciation for it and so I really like that about the work but I I just kind of went back to turning a little bit more um, after grad school and making some smaller objects and uh, I really only made one more conceptual piece after that. It was um, it was like an old shaving stand, like in a Victorian style shaving stand, mm-hmm. and it was for a show. Uh, and I made that piece about my father because well, my father died when I was a, a bo- um, when I was two, and so, um, the shaving stand uh, made sense, you know, because usually your yeah. dad teaches you how to shave, right? And it was a form that I was always interested in, and there was there were a lot of ways to like interact with the piece. And if you go the distance and pull the drawer out, look around and then notice that there's another drawer kind of Tom Moser mm-hmm. style, and you pull it out, you finally see a mirror and a picture of my father so I could see myself with him. So anyway, it was, you know, that that's kind of, that's kind of where the conceptual work ended for me. And then I think, I, I think after that, I took a more formal approach as I was exploring cardboard as a new medium to work with.
0: Now that's everything you've made thus far has been out of wood.
2: Yeah. So well, and, wood then, and, and, cement and, and, and other things, and then you say,
0: well, yeah, wood and harder materials and all of a sudden cardboard comes in. How did that happen?
2: <laughs> so uh, talk
0: about, talk about diving into to cardboard or however it found you or you found okay. it. Okay. Well, that's a wild medium. I mean, not a lot of people work in cardboard and it's definitely not something that's associated with furniture.
2: Right. Right. Well, I've always um, known of, those piece iconic pieces and, and cardboard as a material like Frank Gehry's wiggle chair and other cardboard chairs. And, uh, my friend, uh, Jennifer Anderson did a really cool cardboard piece in grad school. Um, and you know, it's just a, a material that's everywhere. Brian Gladwell uh, uh, makes beautiful cardboard furniture as well. Um, but I never had an interest in it uh, at all until while I was at the Anderson ranch, my first year working there. Uh, We had all of the fluorescent light fixtures replaced in the studio. Mm. And uh, I had to throw away the cardboard boxes. And they were gorgeous. They were like pristine, hardly dented. The electricians were just really careful with their their process and um, had beautiful print on it. And it came time to throw it away. And I was in this beautiful landscape in Colorado. And I was like, hmm, this uh, seems like a shame to throw away this gorgeous material. Let me see what I can do with it. And so I started to uh, glue it up, stack laminate it, mm-hmm. and I started to use all the woodworking tools on it, the bandsaw, the wood turning lathe, chainsaw. And every time I would work with it, it would just surprise me at the crazy textures and patterns that I would get. And so it, it still keeps me going. Every, I find that I'm most inspired by the cutoffs at the bandsaw. When I'm working on something, I'm going for one form, and then uh, something falls off and I'm like, oh, I have to, Oh my God, look at that. I have to figure out how to use that in the next piece. Oh my God.
0: So, so you save all your scraps pretty much
2: <laughs> um, a lot to, of an, to an extent. And if I don't them, by I your I scraps. <laughs> right. So, so when you first
1: thought about that pile of cardboard at Anderson ranch, you, you were, you were aware of the sort of the, you know, the kind of the rich history of, of laminated yeah. cardboard. I mean, um, you know, that the the wiggle chair of Frank Gehry's piece was, uh, you know, an iconic piece that actually I looked into the history of that just because I was curious about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the origins of it were exactly the same. There was a stack of cardboard outside his office and he thought, well, you know, why should this go to the dump? This can be used. And, you know, he originally thought of it as, you know, this very, this was going to be a way to make cost-effective furniture. And it was going to be, you know, quick and easy. And he could he could make some forms he didn't think he could easily make with wood. And of course, you know, the, the truth is just the opposite. That it was incredibly time consuming that the uh, the wiggle chair was only in production less than two years when they realized they just couldn't make money off of it. And, uh, it, you know, it's just an interesting thing. And, you know, I looked into Brian Gladwell as well. And it's curious that you mentioned him because you actually did a collaboration with him later. That's right. Uh, and, Right but you know again at another furniture society conference I first saw Brian Gladwell's work and and that was his initial inspiration was he wanted to build he wanted to build affordable furniture for his friends and he thought that cardboard was a medium to do it so mm-hmm. it's just just curious of the uh the evolution there so you were aware of this background before you saw that pile of cardboard
2: um maybe not the the deep history of it but I just I've seen it used and uh and, of course, in a college setting, it's it's used in a lot of, like, foundation courses, you know, to build things, inexpensive, recyclable material. Um, so I knew a little bit about it, yeah. But uh, So but, you're only the
0: third furniture maker in history to be grabbed by cardboard in such a manner.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: actually, yeah. I but,
2: mean. Yeah, one thing is I kind of found a, a little bit of a niche um, by turning it on a woodcreen yeah. lathe. Yeah. Uh, that's where I think I was uh, definitely accepted by the american association of woodturners for this um you know just uh, it, it's not I, I think it's easy um but it's very dusty and <laughs> it's a little scary uh, um so but you know and i teach workshops and i demonstrate them how to do it and i don't think anybody really follows through with uh trying to do it themselves like, this know?
0: guy's crazy what
2: yeah. is he doing? <laughs> but um but anyway, I think that's where uh, the lathe is a big part of my work. Um, you know, in my shop, I'm at home currently, and over there is the garage where I have uh, a big bandsaw and a one way lathe. And you know, I think those are the two tools that I need the most, you know, uh, to work with. So. Uh, but yeah, the wood turning. Uh, oh, by the way, going back to um, the history of working with cardboard. Um, because Frank Gehry always made seating objects with the cardboard, that's something I always stayed away from. Like, uh, usually when people see my work, they're like, oh, do you know Frank Gehry's work? I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? know? But yeah. um, Sorry if
0: I insulted you with that.
2: <laughs> no, no, yeah. not at the so, I brought him up, you know? So um, it's an obvious
0: decision on your part not to reproduce work from the past. I mean, you wanted uh, to. Take cardboard and do something new with it.
2: Yeah, I didn't want to be uh, make any sort of seating object where somebody sees that and it immediately goes to Frank Carey. I wanted to, at the time I was fresh out of grad school, uh, for my thesis in grad school, I made a lot of cabinets. um, Mm -hmm. And so I continued to make more cabinets out of cardboard. You know, that's where that started. And then the turning came in later when I tried to make bowls and some like little spinning top type things.
0: I remember the first time. I think I saw. Did you have a a cardboard piece? Did you have one in five hundred cabinets?
2: I did. Uh, I think.
0: Or just, or you had a table in five hundred tables.
2: I had two tables in the five hundred tables, but I think the cabinet. I might have had one in cabinets, but I know in one of the design books, the Taunton yeah. or the furniture. Uh, sorry, uh, fine woodworking design books. I had my tall chested drawers in one. The one
0: where everything spins.
2: Oh, that one. Okay. I'm that's sure the one I mean. that
0: I first saw of yours. I okay. Sure. Yeah. Explain that piece. I mean, you know, it's oh, well. it, it's a pretty interesting cardboard piece that you made. Uh,
2: yeah. Thank you. Um, that's something I was always interested in, uh, sort of that interaction with furniture. Okay. So uh, we all interact with furniture in, in very common traditional ways, sitting on a chair, eating at a table, you know, drawers open, doors open. But um, I was always interested in, furthering that interaction and so uh hiding a lazy susan in between some of their drawer units so that you can both change up the look of it you know if you get should get tired of uh sort of a series of drawers and a column sort of Mm -hmm. um, uh, but being able to rotate it and make it your own and have fun with it and also having the drawers go not just pull out but rather pull out and go through the other way as well oh yeah some of these sort of extra Ways that you can interact with objects was something I was really interested in. Kind of, it's um, almost mid- like a giant philosophy.
0: furniture, exquisite corpse.
2: <laughs> okay. Sure. Have you ever heard of that
0: concept, exquisite? Uh, corpse.
2: Uh, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's almost
0: yeah. what it kind of what it seems like. You can change the look with different layers.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: sure. Right, and it's it's
1: not looking at that piece. It's not necessarily obvious that's how it functions. And yeah. you know, I th- I think you know one of the beauties of furniture as a as a fine art medium is that like unlike any other fine art medium you don't really interact with a painting you don't interact with the sculpture but a functional object how you use it is a part of the art i mean that's a conceptual concept obviously but mm-hmm. it's just you know the whole process of discovery is just is just like super cool that's and right then, and you know and hiding things in drawers obviously you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> obvious cliche but it it still is the whole notion of of how we interact with these objects in our daily life, well, that's really the origins of art, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, all these iconic things from Back to the Cavemen, it's really, you know, Mm -hmm. these were ritualistic objects that we interacted with, and that's where fine art came out of, so,
2: you know. You know, going back to that conceptual idea, I think one of the things that I was interested in uh, towards the end of my graduate studies was just giving enough clues to the viewer or user to want to investigate further. You know, like I, I never wanted it to just be a, a, a thing that you pass by, but rather cause a little intrigue. And then hopefully there will be further investigation that will take somebody, mm-hmm. you know, deeper yeah. into the piece.
0: Yeah. I find yeah. with my work too, it's like, I don't want to answer all their questions, but I want to make them curious about it. Sure. You know, because yeah. if you go tell the whole story, what's the point? You know, mm-hmm. You know, then it's like, oh yeah. Then they walk right on by. They're like, oh, da, 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 done. Right. On to the next piece. Uh, actually, I'm
1: slightly curious. I mean, we, we usually avoid getting into wonky technique and tool talks in here, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually, but I'm going to break that rule. Uh-oh. And, and, uh-oh. Right. You know. Breaking the law. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, spoiler alert. I'm actually <laughs> curious how, you know to talk a little about working with cardboard and how you think of it as a material and, and how you get it to do various expressive things. I mean, just because it's a material I'm so unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious. uh, Give us a, give us a two, three minute or whatever. (laughs) Cardboard,
2: cardboard tutorial. Sure. Well, you mentioned uh, the word expressive. Um, The cardboard is expressive on its own. Uh, Once you, Start to glue up layers and create your blank to work with. Um, it can be any size. You can change the orientation of the flutes of the cardboard, and so there's a lot of lot of possibilities with it. Um, and so, for me, because the after you cut into it and turn it, um, because the corrugated uh, patterns are so busy. Me personally, I like to keep my forms somewhat simple, and you know, work with uh, familiar forms—spheres, eggs, large round discs. You know, because if the form is busy and the patterning is busy, that's where uh, they conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. So I like to keep the form a little more, uh, you know, simplistic, and allow that patterning to come out. Um, and so for the longest time, I was. You know, we mentioned Brian Gladwell, who works with cardboard. Um, he actually um, pays a lot of attention to the the frequency of the cardboard. He uses a double layer cardboard, and he'll kind of pay attention to how you slice through it, and then he'll line them up in such a way that it creates these beautiful uh, patterns, almost like a figured wood. You know, for me, I take just more of a barbaric approach, and I just. take layers and I glue it and I'm taking my roller and I'm just stacking, stacking, stacking. So I'm not paying attention to how things are lining up while I'm gluing it up. Maybe later on, if I'm doing something that's a little more segmented, you know, um, then I'm starting to try to line things up. But for the most part, I just, I glue it up into a large blank and I take it to the machines and I let it speak for itself and
1: are all the corrugations going in the same direction or you're just going you're just stacking them You don't care. What (laughs) what direction the corrugations are going in?
2: No. Well, I do um, I do pay attention to that because you know If I stack them all in the same direction that lends itself to something you can see straight through Which is really exciting say for instance like a bowl form Um, If it's a hollow bowl, especially you'll see through it that much easier Uh, you can see the form of the bowl as you walk around. And then at one point you'll be looking straight through it and it kind of disappears. And that's really exciting, (laughs) you know? So, um, so with my work, I always like to keep it either in the same direction or I might alternate it uh, like plywood, uh, each layer perpendicular to the next. Oh, okay. And so that creates another interesting pattern. You know, there's other things that you could do where you create patterns by gluing so much up one way and so much up another way or you can kind of make it spiral around, but not, not for me. I I really, that's just like the two ways. (laughs) So I I don't know if that was enough. I can keep going if you want.
0: (laughs) Oh, please do. Actually, I, I, I'm, I feel bad. I interrupted. I'm I'm curious about um, the cardboard on the lathe. I mean, you Mm -hmm. said a lot of people were scared of it after your workshops. I, you know, it's, it's crazy. Explain how you, you mount, Mount it on the lathe and cut it. It just seems like such a foreign thing to do with cardboard.
2: Yeah, it's actually, um, it's very similar to the techniques you use to turn a bowl, uh, for the cardboard though, I have to glue a piece of uh, wood to the back of it so that I can mount it onto a faceplate. Um, but that's about it. Um, uh, otherwise, um, even when I'm turning bowls, really anything I turn, I'm using a spindle gouge on the lathe. Um, so you might think that if I'm turning a bowl, I'll use a bowl gouge, but because <laughs> it's paper, um, I need a certain profile to the tip of that tool yeah. to slice the material. And let's just, let me just tell you a little secret here. Um, it dulls the tools so fast. I remember you saying that
1: because so well, you're cutting uh, through all that glue. Uh, it's well glue.
2: You know, The right. The glue is what I thought it was in the beginning, but then um, when I was talking to David Ellsworth about it, he was like, you know, Jason, it might be just the nature of a paper, that pulp all woven together. It's an abrasive material, cardboard oh, itself. Gosh. You know, if you were to rub your fingers over cardboard a bunch, you could wear your fingertips off. Yeah, And so that's really, uh, you know, while I thought it was a glue as well, I think he was right to say that it's just the nature of that material, the paper. And so when I turn cardboard, I line up about, six or seven freshly sharpened tools and I'll turn (laughs) for a minute and I know that that tool is dull after that minute even after 30 seconds the tool is dull but I can still get some shape out of it and -hmm. then I have to reach for another tool reach for another tool and just as I get close to my final form I have to always make sure I'm using sharp tools yeah yeah and
1: and how does cardboard sand I, I can't even imagine sanding cardboard it doesn't seem like there's a there's a, it's just so fibrous. It just seems like sanding would just sort of like raise the hairs on it and make it even rougher.
2: Yeah. So, uh, with cardboard, it's great because I start with 80 grit and I finish with 80 grit. Um, and you know, it's cardboard. It's not like wood in the way that it's one long continuous surface that you can see scratch marks in. Uh, it's like, you know, there's a lot of air if you will in the cardboard. And so you don't see those scratches. And I say, sometimes I might, go to 120, but it's very rare, 80 grit. You, I can usually start and finish with 80 grit. And I will say too, another important tool that I use when working with cardboard is an air hose, just a compressed air hose, because you got to imagine all those little uh, voids get filled up with sawdust or cardboard dust. And um, <laughs> and uh, if I don't have an air hose, I, I really can't even do the work that I do because I'll just constantly be fighting, you know, these clogged pores, if you will. And so um, the air hose is so important to blow out all that stuff so you get the clarity in the work. And then you get to find all those sort of folded over pieces of paper, which I like to call hanging chads. Uh, And then you just got to work the sandpaper across it to abrade it off.
0: Do you do you find that I know the air pressure can do a lot of damage if there's too much of it? Do you Mm -hmm. have to kind of be judicious? with the cardboard cause it's softer?
2: Uh, not really. No. Uh, cardboard is, uh, it's actually, once you start to glue it together, it, you'll, you'd be surprised at how, how strong it is, you know? And um, yeah, so cardboard is super strong. And one thing that's interesting too, a little side note is over the years, I've tried a lot of different things like uh, wetting the cardboard or torching the cardboard or, you know, just doing whatever I can to see what will happen. And uh, wetting the cardboard kind of makes the glue uh, reactivates the glue and separates it a little bit. But if you were to maybe not touch that and let the, let the object just dry, Mm -hmm. it dries harder than it was previously. Like the, the reactivation process of that glue or whatever paste they use to put the cardboard together uh, is just that much stronger. So Anyways, um, I guess I'm just trying to say that um, cardboard is super strong. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> it really is. It can it can take a lot of weight if glued up. It's very much like wood where there's a direction to it. You know, if you're going to, uh, you know, expect it to bend a certain way, it only bends really one way, um, you know, similar to wood, you know, wants to bend one way. Um, but also while I'm cutting it, while I'm turning it on a lathe, um, I have to pay attention to which way it's, oriented so that I know how to, you know, use the tool and enter the tool into the work, especially while it's on the lathe. Um, so yeah, so I think I went on a little, little much with the cardboard.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, it's, it, really it's, a, it's a fascinating material because, you know, you know, um, Rob brings up an interesting question that gets into the whole sort of transitory nature of cardboard. I mean, it, it is a, it's not a precious material it's an easily disposable material it doesn't have the permanence of wood i mean in the sense that you know we have we have pieces built by the egyptians thousands of years ago still with us i you know i don't i don't think a cardboard piece wood not cardboard
0: Right. would. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cardboard had corrugated cardboard, at least hadn't been invented yet. Uh, I, I mean, it's just sort of the notion of the impermanence of it. I mean, do you, do you think about that or, or is it just an inherent part of the material that, you know, 50 years from now, it probably is going to decompose?
2: Um, you know, I really don't think about it that much. I know some people who uh, buy my work that uh, not, actually not even that many people who buy my work ask that about the longevity of it. Um, I think that as long as you don't um, expose it to water or cats, um, (laughs) the piece will last a lifetime. (laughs) You know, I always uh, go back to like how long I've lived with cardboard, whether it be boxes in your garage or basement. Mm -hmm. And and assuming you're not using uh, harmful glues and things like that, that will want to eat away at it, you know, um, I think, I think as long as you take care of it, like any object, uh, any piece of furniture, it should last a lifetime or more. Um, I'm using Elmer's glue all, so pretty, pretty. Yeah, cool, I was curious cool. about that. <laughs> yeah, and so I've tried using like spray adhesive in the past, and I just I didn't like the process, and I didn't like the smell, and oh, awesome. I just thought that that was going to eat away at the material. But uh, but just keeping it simple, and I use a thinned down Elmer's glue, thinned with water, and um, and just. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't put finishes on the cardboard whenever it's cardboard. It, it just remains cardboard because I want the tactile feel of the paper, uh, for the user or owner of my work. Um, whereas if I were to put a finish on top of that, it would harden it, maybe yeah. make it look a little more plastic. And so, um, oh, and it's
0: every, every woodworker's dream is not to have to sand that much
2: <laughs> or finish. I mean, that's, oh, that's right. That's you right. got it. <laughs> Now I do apply finish when I uh, incorporate other materials like oh uh, yeah like the plaster into it. Then mm-hmm. I'll put a, a top coat over that.
0: I have one of your pieces with plaster on it that you sent me in 2011. Oh, That's nice. it's hanging up on my wall in our living room. It's a beautiful piece, and that that was not long after I think you started doing that the plaster and mm-hmm. right. putting the plaster in there.
2: Yeah, I've tried plaster. I've tried cement, pushing cement into the grain. Oh wow. I called it green <laughs> into mm-hmm. the corrugations. Uh, yeah. I've also tried beeswax because mm-hmm. uh, you know the cardboard sort of lends itself to that sort of beehive kind of um, that look. Yeah, yeah what I, I was you-
1: gonna. No, I was gonna say that uh, that collaborate collaboration piece you did with uh, Brian Gladwell. Where half of it was sort of a, a natural chainsaw texture, which right. actually seems fascinating. The whole notion again of taking a chainsaw to a cardboard block, but the <laughs> uh, but the just the the rich textural difference between the chainsaw block and the plaster filled block was just a it was it's a beautiful piece. Thank mm-hmm. I mean, okay. you. Hopefully, hopefully you sold that.
2: <laughs> Actually, it's a, uh, we made it while he was a resident at SUNY Purchase College. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dennis Fitzgerald, who uh, was running the woodshop at the time, he, he thought it'd be great to get two of us, two cardboard guys together. And so I'm really thankful for that. And I had a week together uh, with Brian and we tried so many different things. And by Wednesday, we were like, we, we got to figure something out. And <laughs> we made that in about three days, you know, that piece. And so, uh, it, I worked later on, I, I was a resident at SUNY purchase and it's still there in the office. Oh, that's oh, okay. Yeah. It stayed with the college.
1: Now, now I was going to say, so, you know, working with one material uh, and essentially and working with a very specific way, how do you, how do you keep the creative juices flowing? I mean, in terms about, you know, where's the, where's the next idea come from?
2: All right. Well, um, I think lately I'm most inspired or most motivated to work by opportunities that I get to exhibit my work. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, currently I'm a professor uh, at Northern Michigan University in the wood program, and uh, most of my uh, time and energy goes to my students. And I'm really excited um, and passionate to teach and and give the students my all. And so it's those winter. Uh, you know, vacations and the summer break where I get to make, make my work. And so um, I'm often mostly inspired by the show that I get invited to be in. I think a fun one was not too long ago, a show at the uh, Center, for, Center for Craftsmanship. Uh, Boxes to Die For uh, was oh. one of the shows. So I was invited to participate in making either a coffin or some ceremonial urns. Oh yeah. wow!
0: That's <laughs> that is a wild show. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm I'm working on three urns right now. I'm about to go out to my shop after this and work on them. So oh,
2: nice! Wow! So,
0: so so those those are the, that's great inspiration. The exhibitions and
2: mm-hmm. yeah. different
0: gallery shows.
2: Yeah, and so uh, that's really what motivates me. Um, and then, you know, whenever I'm in the studio and I'm making things, I find that. I just get so many ideas. So one project leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And pretty soon I find myself working on three or more projects at one time. Mm-hmm. But it's because I don't want to give up on what I just learned from the material. I, uh, I mentioned early on that the cutoffs really inspire me, you know, when yeah. I'm working, say, on the bandsaw or something. Uh, and so so if I were to just have some quality time in the studio to just make work, uh, that's, that's really what, uh, you know, inspires me most just working with the cardboard. Cause it surprises yeah. me still, even after 15 years of working with cardboard, I'm still surprised and curious about what I can get out of it. So
0: yeah. you men- you mentioned in some of the, some of the couple of interviews that I've read that, uh, literature inspires you too. I mean, I know that's a big inspiration for me to read books or, current articles Mm -hmm. and things like that, what, what kind of literatures, you know, gets you thinking?
2: I wish I read more actually. (laughs) I'm sorry to (laughs) throw out that. (laughs) No, I do too,
0: man. I've got a pile of books that are way bigger The unread pile is way bigger than the red Uh pile. Right. Way bigger.
2: (laughs) You know, one thing that's a little funny is that, you know, I I have all these collected art books, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, from my favorite furniture makers, from the Furniture Society, from architects. And I, I have a wonderful collection of books that I ever, I only ever really looked at the pictures And now at forty four, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should start reading some of these books. And so, currently, I'm reading a James Cranoff book. You know, the impractical, I think, maker or cabinet maker. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so you're catching up really, really late. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little slow. I forgot about all those words in those books.
1: You know, I'm not reading at all lately. I'm mainly looking at pictures. So, I mean, and that that begs the question, you know, we've talked with a lot of our, our guests because we usually do this in person. We don't right. usually do this over the Internet. And This is a new thing know, for us. <laughs> this is a new thing for us, you know, certainly, you know, entirely driven by the times we live in. And so how is, I mean, how has that affected your work? And you're talking about having quality time? Well, we now have a lot of time. I wouldn't exactly view it as quality time because there is a, there is, a, as one artist I heard referred this to, there's the weirdness. I mean there's the well, there's the double weirdness of, of you know, of certainly of the, the pandemic and then there's the whole, societal noise of black lives matter which is obviously a very important issue as well so how are you dealing with the noise and quality time and and being creative in this extended period of time at
2: home right well in the beginning uh so i guess it was around march uh when we started having yeah. all the stay-at-home orders um i was still teaching and so i had to be uh, think on my toes and uh, figure out how to deliver um, furniture Uh, learning over the internet and so luckily we already had a semester of uh, hands-on time in the studio so students got to uh, you know use all the equipment and by the time that um, COVID-19 came around uh, they were working on their final table designs and other projects so I had to figure that out Um, and so that was really exciting it was a fun challenge trying to figure out how to do it. And I think my students really enjoyed what I came up with. Um, and so we finished off the semester nicely, but, um, afterwards I really didn't feel motivated to make work. There was, I didn't feel inspired. You know, when you look at the news, it's a big scary thing.
0: Anxiety is what got me.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, I, I still haven't made work yet. I should say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm trying some new things in the studio right now. I'm starting to, uh, um, fine-tune my workspace. Um, you know, I just built uh, two decks on our house, and so that was fun for me to get out there and use some tools and get dirty. And now I think after our interview here, I might go design a table for our new deck. Um, uh, actually, it's already designed. It's I got to go in there and figure out the joinery. Um, but after that, I really need to take advantage of this time I have, this these summer months, which is now shortened because because of this pandemic, we're going to start our school semester early. Our fall semester will start a week early, which means our, semes- our summer is shortened and I have less time to really focus on making. But, um, but I think in the very near future, I'll, I'll get some time in the school studio, which is locked up at the moment. Still can't really go back into school and work in those shops, you know? So I'm limited to the space I have to work in here.
1: So, are you going to be teaching remotely in the, in the fall, or you're you're actually going to is the school is opening up?
2: Uh, we're hoping that we'll be face to face. We're going to have to figure out how to how many students can be in a space at a time, and how we're going to clean the tools and equipment and things like that between each class. But um, we're hoping that it's going to be face to face. But we also have to have our backup plans for if we have to go online. Yeah. So we're thinking of toolkits and things like that to send to students and figure out how to deliver the message over, over the internet.
0: Preaching the good wor- word of cardboard. Uh, you're making.
2: <laughs> actually last semester was the first time that I, I taught my students, uh, my upper level students. Uh, it was more about uh, alternative materials this semester. And so oh, that's cool. We got into cardboard for the first third of it. And then we got into some cement work. So working with concrete and what have Ooh. you. And then, well, that's when COVID happened. We were Mm -hmm. going to be doing some uh, fiber next. Yeah.
1: Right. Because, I mean, teaching, you you seem to have done a lot of teaching over your career. And um, certainly, again, because of COVID, you know, most of the craft schools are closed down for the year. And have you thought about how how you're going to, you know, teaching going forward? It, It sounds like you have in terms of how to get the concepts out there and, um, in an internet platform. In and,
2: uh, yeah, online. I mean, I, I have thought about it and I'll have to put a lot more thought into it. Um, but I'm, I'm part of, um, the furniture society, uh, a lot of the educators, uh, that are members of the furniture society. We get together every other week on a Friday and we discuss, uh, different ways of teaching. We meet on zoom and, uh, we're we're sharing ideas we have some google drives where we share some projects ideas and and so that's been really helpful and so uh, it's all very uncertain how it's all going to go down so yeah uh, yeah but i think toolkits are a big part of it so that if we're not in school uh hopefully we'll make it uh make a way for students to work at home you know with you know, certain set of tools and bench hooks and things like that, that they can clamp to their table surfaces that they have available to them and work. So.
1: Well, that's, that's actually very cool that you're, you're collaborating with other professors and doing it through the, through the vehicle of the furniture society, which is, uh, you know, a wonderful organization. I mean, I've been involved with it since actually the very beginning and it's, you know, it's sort of really how we foster community amongst all of us sitting alone in our studios. So. <laughs> right. right.
2: Cool. No, it has been great. The wonderful turnout, uh, people all over the, the country show up and it's really exciting. And even Ashley Eric Schmoen, who's in Australia, I think right now. So she, well, she doesn't show up, but she's a big part of the discussion. So, Oh, that's just, cool. Really right. Nice. She's
1: in Tasmania, right?
2: I, I think so. Yeah. Well, now
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, we were supposed to present at the furniture society, uh, conference in Asheville this year. And, needless to say uh it's not happening and hopefully hopefully we'll do it next year but right. uh
0: not well we're we've been talking with the furniture society as well and you know they're they're uh supporting our podcast um on their monthly newsletter they're they'll be mentioning our podcast so uh starting this next month so it's you know it's it, it's a really fun thing to have them interested in what we're doing and vice versa you know they've always been a big part of most woodworkers studio furniture maker and woodworkers lives so it's
2: indeed and and i've really uh, over the years i've received grants from the furniture society for mm-hmm. whether it be educational grants uh for materials yeah. or or uh the, the EFASO i think it is for shipping work to shows and mm-hmm. anyway just wonderful opportunities through furniture society and of course the conferences each year are so much fun yeah yeah right. right
0: well and i guess yeah. they the the One this year has been rescheduled um, to next year in Asheville. So, you know, if it's in person, more than likely, we'll see you there.
2: Oh, I'll be there. Yeah. I mean, it is in person. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well,
1: I Um, think, Eric, you got to... Well, actually, I just wanted to mention, you know, I hate to keep on bringing it back to to COVID, but I just wanted to ask you about your little project that you did uh, actually helping the local hospitals... Yeah, mm-hmm. produce. Um, it wasn't personal protective gear. It was, it was a, they were, I, I saw it on your Instagram feed and I actually couldn't even tell what they were, but right. <laughs> they were plexiglass objects to help hospitals. Oh,
2: that's right. Yeah. So um, we have a human centered design program at our college and uh, the faculty in that program, Peter Pless, uh, was working with a local doctor to figure out how to n- use, make these sort of canopies that are used for patients while they're laying down they're sort of used for like an intubation process. Um, but it's a way of protecting both the patient and the, the doctors working with them. And so, uh, Peter had already designed face shields and the director of our program, Derek Christian was, has been making those. And so he had that go in, uh, you know, with the 3d printing and cutting the plexiglass and the laser cutter and stuff like that. And then, um, as soon as the design got finalized for these uh, these canopies, these intubation uh, shelters, uh, they asked me to come in uh, to help out um, in production with this. And so, you know, it was all done by hand for their original prototypes. But I, I suggested that we use the CNC router to cut out um, all the parts and pieces uh, out of the plexi. And then, what was exciting was I got to go then into the human center design studio and use figure out how to bend plexiglass, which is something I never really did before, but uh, Peter showed me, you know, we have this long heating element, they just Uh, gotta gotta (laughs) flip it around a little bit just to heat it up and then you can bend it, make jigs and things like that to prop it up at certain angles. And so, yeah, I came in and we banged out a bunch of those, uh, over 20 units of those um, before we ran out of plexiglass material. So. But um, they were distributed to all of our local Upper Peninsula, uh, you know, healthcare workers. And so here in Marquette, uh, they used a few of them, but then they went, uh, you know, hours away to different hospitals in the area and it was really exciting. And what was really nice too is that uh, Peter Pless uh, was happy to share any of his, uh, you know, the face shields and things like that. I was able to email that off to some people. I, you know, After uh, showing this on social media, I had a few people contacting me saying, can I get that file to make those face shields? And I was able to, um, with Peter's uh, permission, send it out. And we happily shared whatever we had to offer.
1: Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, it's interesting how the the woodworking world is plugged in. So has it got you thinking about maybe using some CNC
2: stuff with cardboard? Have you thought about Um, that? I have used it actually already Um, while at the Anderson Ranch Art Center. um, You know, just using the CNC is just another tool to cut into the material. That thing Uh, was
0: delivered when I was there that summer, uh, 2011. I remember when it came in.
2: Right. That was, it was exciting. Oh my gosh. But uh, yeah, learning how to use the CNC and, uh, and, and, I think it allowed me to be a little more graphic with my work, uh, mostly in a two-dimensional sense. Because I, I, I make functional work, I make sculptural work, and I also make some uh, work for the wall. Um, and so I was able to glue up these uh, cardboard panels and uh, use plaster, and then I, you know, program in some design uh, on uh, into the CNC and have it cut it out, and then fill it in with other colors of plaster and anyway so cnc does show uh, show up in my work sometimes yeah
1: yeah i was just curious because you know it's it's a whole nother realm of woodworking and that that sort of that getting into that range of automation um that obviously you know small shop woodworkers like us don't really get a chance to if we could afford it we would i mean because i think the possibilities are very cool i'm not necessarily again it's just another tool i'm not I'm not thrown off by the fact that my hand has to be in everything.
0: Pretty interesting. Your CNC work, um, not super obvious. You know, I think you're talking about like, maybe like the image of the Buddha off of some wall pieces and, you know, it's not, it's not super obvious, you know, but it, and it does look like it's done by hand. So, I mean, it's not like you really got to say in the byline CNC machined.
2: Sure. Right. I appreciate that, Rob, because uh, I, I never want anything I make to, really besides the chainsaw marks that torn paper uh i don't really want you to know how i made it i mean that's not what i'm going yeah, for Yeah, it's like it's
0: obvious <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not i mean it's the you know i i like a lot of your work because you know and i've always been attracted to it because it's kind of like most of your stuff you see it and it it's consistent and it makes you know i see i mean even going from your cardboard to the wobble tops and back through a lot of your mm-hmm. work. It's like, oh, that's Jason's work. I don't know. I, it, you know, it's
2: uh-huh. speaks the same language. Yeah. Yeah. It. That's a good way to put it. You mm-hmm. know, it's
0: like you've created a language that has blossomed with the cardboard that, you know, you've created a language as a maker. That's pretty, pretty remarkable. It's, it's yeah. pretty cool. No, no, it's, I mean, it's a, yeah. a real challenge as a maker just to,
1: to work with one material and keep on
0: to find, oh, yeah, a to find a, like a voice
1: that, with one know? material and just just keep it going so uh so like so i i guess the last question would be and and maybe you should ask this question rob
0: oh <laughs> yeah so have you had a chance to collaborate with a cat yet
2: oh thank you for saying this um <laughs> you know i i i've made these objects for a cat but i i i never actually put it in front of a cat uh (laughs) you know because for a while there i felt like um i had so much control over this material like i I knew i knew what kind of results i can get from it and and i wanted the cat to sort of put its own sort of mark or 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 patina or whatever it is i don't know so i made these pac-man ghosts a while back and uh so i made these pac-man ghosts and they originally had wheels uh, underneath them you know this was a while back In so i put wheels on these and i thought that it would be fun for a cat to push them around the room and uh tear it tear it apart and climb through it and just uh so that was a collaboration with the cat is what i called it <laughs> um but i have yet to i'm not a cat person personally so i have yet to find a cat. Borrow a cat <laughs> right
0: <laughs> that's right or yeah this- i
1: have this I have the feeling that a cat would come up with its own ideas on what it thinks is interesting. <laughs> I
0: can just imagine a cat, like, sleeping inside of it. <laughs> and, like, I'm, I'm too lazy to claw it. I just want really? to sleep on it.
2: Sure. I just thought it'd be funny to see a cat push this ghost around the room, this sort of Pac-Man yeah. ghost, just because it's on wheels. Or, supposed, you know, it would be on wheels. And just kind of move this ghost around the room and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, Jason, it's
0: been an absolute wonder, a wonderful time talking with you. Yep, I'm I'm glad you joined us. And um, why make? Why make? Same here, guys. It's been a lot of
2: fun. Thank you. Why make?
1: You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or a direct download from our website, Why-Make.com.
0: This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Robin Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.